John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of humans. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word of the Lord. Every proper hero has an origin story. So, you know, pick your favorite mythical universe, whether it's DC or Marvel or Star Wars or Harry Potter or Middle Earth. Every hero in those universes, and a lot of times also the villains, they all have an origin story. The origin story is, is important because it tells you who they are, where they come from, and especially why do they do the things that they do. If you want to understand the hero, you have to know their origin story. So even in the ancient world, there were origin stories. If you've ever been reading the Bible and you come across one of those long lists of names and so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so and you're just kind of starting to fall asleep, those genealogies are origin stories. So for instance, in our modern world, we get an identity by looking inside at our heart and then whatever we find there, we express it to the world around us and we say, this is who I am. But in the ancient world, you got an identity by who you came from, who were your parents, who were your ancestors. The genealogies in the Bible are origin stories. Now, there are four historical accounts of the life of Jesus in the Bible. They're called Gospels. And each one of the Gospels begins with a different part of the origin story of Jesus. Um, the first 18 verses in the Gospel of John are called the prologue. And the prologue in John's Gospel takes us all the way back to the very beginning. In many ways, it's like the mother of all origin stories. Because the Gospel of John um, says that um, the story of Jesus doesn't just begin with his physical birth on earth. It, it goes back farther than that. It goes back all the way to the beginning of the universe and says that, that when the universe began, Jesus was already there. That means that there's a sense in which it's actually impossible to talk about the origin story of Jesus because Jesus has no origin. He's always existed because he's God. Now, it's right there that we begin running into difficulties in our modern world. Our secular, pluralistic world um, has a, a core assumption about Jesus. And, and many people would make, say that there's a big difference between what, what, what are called um, the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. So many people would say, sure, Christians believe that Jesus is God, but that's a, an invention of the church that developed hundreds of years after Jesus lived. The historical figure of Jesus, that he's certainly a great human being, but he's not God. 
That was a doctrine, an article of faith that certain fanatical, quixotic Christians um, invented hundreds of years after Jesus lived on earth. But it's like Marvel or, or Star Wars. It's a mythical universe. It's not real. But what if it is? I want to invite you this morning, over the next three weeks, we're going to look at this prologue in John's gospel and see what it has to show us about who Jesus is, and not just who Jesus is, but who we are, and what's gone wrong with the world, and, and, um, and what, what's God doing about it? So this morning, we're just looking at the first five verses, and, and we're seeing three big themes that John develops throughout the course of the rest of his gospel, and those themes are the divinity of Jesus, the darkness of this world, and the love that's at the heart of the universe. The divinity of Jesus, the darkness of this world, and the love that's at the heart of this universe. So first, let's look at the divinity of Christ. Um, John calls Jesus the Word. Now, we'll come back later and talk about what that means, but when he calls Jesus the Word, um, notice what he says about this word. First of all, he's talking about a person. Verse 2 says, he was in the beginning with God. So the word is not an it, he's a person. But secondly, John says that um, this word uh, is not just with God, the word is divine. He says the word was God. And thirdly, notice that this divine, personal word is the source of all life. So what are the very first words in the prologue? In the beginning. Does that sound familiar? It's going back to the very first words in the Bible, which say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is intentionally taking us back to the very beginning of the Bible and saying that when God said, let there be light, or let there be water, or earth, or sun, moon, or stars, that Jesus is the divine personal word through which all things came into existence. So John says that explicitly in verse 3, that all things were made through him, and without him, that's Jesus, was not anything made that was made. That means that everything that has an origin has its origin in Jesus. Are we getting dizzy yet? Friends, this gospel is telling us that Jesus is not just uh, a human being that was born and lived and died like any other human being. This is telling us that Jesus was God, is God. This passage, along with many, many others in the Bible, is one of the primary building blocks of something that's called the doctrine of the Trinity, which says that God is one God, but he exists in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it's right here that we need to just take a little bit of time. Because many people would say, we just abandoned the realm of history and entered into the realm of faith. Many people would say um, that the idea, the doctrine of the divinity of Jesus is an invention, a total invention of the church hundreds of years after Jesus lived. That, um, that this is something that Christians invented and that it has no basis in history, but it was invented hundreds of years after the life of Jesus. However, if we look at the history, we see a different story. So let's just ask the question, when did Christians start worshiping Jesus as God? 
many people would say hundreds of years later, the evidence says something different. So for instance, not even in the Bible, but in ancient um, Roman history, there's a letter that has survived throughout the years uh, by a Roman official. His name was Pliny, and he wrote to the emperor at the time, whose name was Trajan. And this letter has been dated to around the year 110 AD, which is roughly 80 years after the time that Jesus lived. In this letter, Pliny is asking Emperor Trajan for advice on whether or not to keep executing Christians. How's that for correspondence? Um, he, he has a couple of Christian female slaves that he's been interrogating by torture, trying to get information from them. By the way, um, interesting side note, these female Christian slaves are called deacons, which means that they were leaders in the early church. But, but what were these female Christian slaves guilty of? Pliny writes to Trajan and he says, the sum total of their guilt was no more than the following. They had met regularly before dawn on a determined day and sung a hymn to Christ as to a God. This means that within 80 years of the life uh, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christians were worshiping Jesus as God within 80 years. But we can go earlier than that. This gospel that we're reading, the prologue, John explicitly calls Jesus God. Now, historians uh, will say that the Gospel of John was written between the years 90 and 100 AD. That's only 60 to 70 years after the life of Jesus. Many of his original followers would still have been alive, but we can go earlier than that. In the letters of Paul which were written 20 to 30 years after Jesus lived. Uh, Paul regularly refers to other hymns that were being sung to Jesus in worship of Christ. So one of them is in Colossians. We studied Colossians earlier this year. In Colossians, the, the hymn says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and that all things were created through him and for him and in him. This means that that. Um, almost within a handful of years of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that Orthodox monotheistic Jews were doing a complete 180 on their worldview and worshiping a human being as God. This was not a late invention of the church. It was not hundreds of years later. It was almost immediately. This belief was there from the very beginning. Um, now, at this point, maybe somebody would, would understandably say, well, okay, so perhaps the earliest Christians were worshiping Jesus as God. But still, that was something they said about Jesus. But Jesus himself never claimed to be God. But he did. Friends, we don't have time this morning to go through all the places in the Bible where Jesus does and says things that only God can do or say, like claiming to have authority to forgive people's sins or telling people that their eternal destiny depends on their relationship to him, or claiming to tell people that if you see me, you've seen the Father, you've seen God. But let's just pick one place, and not even the Gospel of John, because people will say, well, John was written so late that you know, he had this high view of Jesus, he called Jesus God, but the earlier Gospels, we don't see that. Oh, but we do. Well, let's go to the Gospel of Mark. It's widely recognized as being the first Gospel that was written roughly 30 years after Jesus lived. There were lots of eyewitnesses of Jesus that were still alive in those days. Do you know um, that when Jesus was arrested and brought to trial before the religious authorities, why was Jesus condemned to death? 
Well, it wasn't because he claimed to be the Messiah, that is, the one who was going to deliver the Jews from Roman oppression. Lots of other homegrown leaders in those days claimed to be the Messiah. It was not a capital offense to claim to be the Messiah in those days. You couldn't get killed for it. You could get killed for blasphemy, in, in, in other words, claiming to be God, and that's exactly why Jesus was condemned to death. He claimed to be God. Where do we see that? In, in Mark chapter 14, when Jesus is brought to trial, the religious leaders ask him point blank, are you the Christ? In other words, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, I am. Now, if he had just stopped there, he would have been able to continue living. But he went on from there and said, and you will see the Son of Man which is a term he used regularly to refer to himself. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And when the high priest heard that, he cried out, blasphemy, and all of the religious leaders condemned him to death. Why? Because Jesus was explicitly quoting from the prophet Daniel, chapter 7. Daniel 7 talks about one like a son of man, this, this figure who shares the glory, power, dominion, and kingdom of God and rules over all creation with God. It was a direct claim to divinity. And you can see that's exactly how the religious, religious leaders understood it because they condemned him to death. Friends, the gospel of John is telling us that Jesus Christ is God. He is divine. He is God in the flesh. So when we come to the Bible, we have to understand, here's what this means for you and me. First, I want you to be encouraged that when you open the Bible, that you are actually encountering something that's historically reliable. That, that are there questions? Are there difficulties? Are, are there things that we're not sure about? Of course they are. But at the very least, I want you to be encouraged that the, the doctrine of the divinity of Christ is not a late invention of the church. It wasn't something that came hundreds of years later. It's there from the very beginning. That The doctrine that Jesus is God is a late invention of the church. That's the myth. The reality is that it's there from the very beginning. Secondly, for all of us, um, I, I want you to understand that coming to terms with Jesus means coming to terms with someone who at the very least claimed to be God and his earliest followers worshiped him as God. That means that, that the being you're coming to terms with is not simply a wonderful human teacher or a guru or a revolutionary or even an enlightened prophet. He, at the very least, claimed to be the universal God who came to earth in human flesh. Now that leads to our next question. Why did this God come to earth? We've just talked about the divinity of Jesus. Secondly, we need to look at the darkness of the world. Um, if you look at verse 5, John says, the light, that's Jesus, the light shines in darkness. Now, think about this image. If darkness is all there is, then you would never know it's dark. But when light comes, all of a sudden you realize, whoa, I was in the dark. The light reveals the darkness. In other words, Jesus came to reveal and to heal the darkness of the world. Now, obviously, darkness can mean different things. At the very least, it could just mean an absence of light. But as you read through the Gospel of John, and even as we read through the prologue, we're going to find out that when John says the world is characterized by darkness, he's talking about moral and spiritual darkness, which is actually very helpful for us in our modern world. Because on the one hand, we modern Western people, um, things like injustice 
and human rights violations are huge conversations for us today. We have a, an extremely high sense of moral outrage over those things in our culture. But on the other hand, we don't think of those things in terms of sin. So for instance, Linda Mercadante is a theologian who um, she interviewed hundreds of people who describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. And then she compiled her findings and put them in a book called Belief Without Borders. One of her main findings about these folks is that uh, they soundly rejected the idea of sin, which is really interesting because you think about this and you realize the gospel of John, like 2,000 years ago, kind of realized, oh, wow, 2,000 years later, people are going to really struggle with this idea as if to say, okay, you don't believe in sin. No problem. Can we talk about darkness instead? So one of the things that's been really interesting to me as I look around and, and read and, and just kind of watch and observe what's going on in our world recently is more and more people are talking about the state of our world in terms of darkness. People are very concerned that the world is getting darker and darker, morally and spiritually darker. So for instance, lots of people are very concerned about the effect that technology and especially internet technology is having on our lives. I was just down the street at a coffee shop recently, and there's a book there called New Dark Age, Technology and the End of the Future. Or um, many people, I know, wow, huh? Um, <laughs> politically, people are very concerned about the state of our world and regularly use darkness to describe what's going on, especially the resurgence of, of uh, nationalist or fascist movements all around the globe. So an op-ed piece I read in the New York Times just a few months ago talked about an authoritarian darkness that has descended upon our globe. And by the way, this is a, um, an experience that extends all the way across the ideological or political spectrum. It's not just left or right, it's all the way across. So just yesterday, I read another opinion piece by Peter Weiner. He's a conservative commentator. He was describing the fact that many conservative Christians today are um, uh, deeply concerned about what he called a dark narrative about the collapse of morality in our society. And in fact, it's, it's a cultural phenomenon as well. Have you ever noticed how many dystopian apocalyptic TV shows there are right now? One of them that I watched recently has a scene in which a dad sits down to dinner with his family and basically has an existential breakdown. He says, it's like we went too far. We imagined too much. We sent all these probes in, into space and we went to the very edge of the solar system, built the Hadron Collider and the internet, and we painted all those paintings and we wrote all those great songs and then pop, whatever we had, we punctured it and now it's all collapsing and his kids are like, dude, what's wrong with you? <laughs> but, but we're concerned. The world feels like a dark place. In fact, I'm a little weird and I've mentioned this before. When I'm out and about, um, I like to poll people. I have different questions I ask people. One of the questions I ask people is, hey, do you feel more or less hopeful about the future of the world? By far, the most common answer is people will tell me they feel less hopeful about the future of the world and that they feel like it's gotten even worse over the last five to 10 years. All of this, friends, it just simply affirms what the Gospel of John told us 2,000 years ago, that this world we live in is characterized by moral and spiritual darkness. Now, that's actually the easy step. 
The, the harder step than that is, is to go the next step and say, not only looking around at the world around us and say, okay, the world is a dark place, but to say the reason the world is a dark place is because there's darkness inside of us. It's easy to see the darkness in the world. It's really difficult to see the darkness inside of us. So for instance, you know, the hardest word to hear is not the lie that you can deny. You know, people will say all kinds of awful things about you. They'll trash talk you. They'll say lies about you. What's the saying? Haters gonna hate. People will say all kinds of awful, mean, nasty things about you, but the hardest word to hear is not the lie that you can deny. It's the truth you can't bear to face. So for instance, there was a little village in Germany called Ordruf, and it was the, the first village, the first concentration camp that was discovered by the Allies at the end of World War II. They walked into the village and they discovered 2,000 bodies stacked waiting to be incinerated. The German soldiers had been trying to get rid of the evidence, but they fled before the Allies came in order to escape being captured. So when, when they got there, a couple of hours later, George Patton, General George Patton himself, arrived on the scene. Now, George Patton's nickname was Old Blood and Guts. This is a guy who got his nickname because he, he was very comfortable with carnage. But George Patton had not been in that village, in that concentration camp, more than one hour before he vomited. He went into the village. He talked to the mayor. He talked to the townspeople. He said, didn't you know what was going on here? And every single one of those villagers denied they had any idea what was happening there. Even though they could see the smoke rising from the furnace over the horizon, even though the um, soldiers from the camp were regularly coming into the village to drink and brag about what was going on, they all claimed they had no idea what was going on. They couldn't bear to face the truth. And so George Patton, he ordered the mayor and his wife, and all of the villagers to come to the village the next day and dig graves for the bodies. That night, after they did that, the mayor and his wife went home and they hanged themselves. And they left a note that simply said, we didn't know, but we knew. The hardest truth to face, is it's not the lies that you can deny, it's the truth you can't bear to face about yourself. Friends, the gospel, we, you know, we like to think of ourselves as good people who just need a little help. Of course we're not perfect, but we're basically good people and, and we just need a little help. The gospel says to each and every one of us, you, we are not just good people who need a little help. We are spiritually dead people who need a radical intervention. Jesus is that intervention. He's the God of the universe who came to earth in human flesh to reveal and to heal the darkness of this world. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the divinity of Jesus. We've talked about the darkness of this world. But lastly, we need to look at the love that's at the heart of the universe. How does Jesus rescue this world from darkness? Remember at the beginning, we said that John calls Jesus the word. That John uses a, a Greek word. It's logos or logos, depending on how you say it. Um, that was a hugely important um, concept in the ancient world. In, in ancient Greek philosophy, um, they believed that the whole universe 
uh, was like a giant living organism. It was ordered, it was harmonious, the apparent chaos of the world was all subsumed within the, the orderly, harmonious nature of the world, and that all of this ordered, harmonious nature of the world was all um, structured according to a divine but impersonal principle they called the Logos. It was kind of like the force in Star Wars. This, this divine impersonal force that inhabits all of creation. Or you could think about it like this. If you're a coder, then um, the website fits together according to the logos of the code. Or if you're an architect, a, a building fits together according to the logos of the blueprint. Okay? That's how it works. The logos is, 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 um, is how everything fits together. So everything fits together according to the logos, and um, something finds its purpose or fulfills its purpose by adhering it, conforming itself to the logos. So for instance, if you attach a shopping cart to the end of a train and try to ride in it, then you are not using that shopping cart according to its logos. Amen. I actually read a story about a guy who tried to do this. It did not go well. That's how I found out about that illustration. Um, you're not using the shopping cart according to its logos. John, um, so for instance, the, the ancient Greeks, they said that, that the whole point of life is to discover the logos of the world and then conform your life to the logos because if you can conform your life to the logos, then you will fulfill your purpose and you will have a good life. And who doesn't want that? John takes this concept of the Logos and he stands it on its head. It caused a thought revolution in the ancient world because John begins by saying, okay, the Logos is divine and all things were created by means of the Logos. And, and, and up to this point, any Greek philosopher in that age would have read this and said, cool, John, we're on the same page here. But then John goes on from that, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, to say that the Logos isn't a principle, it's a person. To say that the Logos is not some impersonal principle according to which you have to conform your life. No, it's a person with whom you need to come into a relationship. So there's a French philosopher named Luc Ferry. He wrote an international bestseller called A Brief History of Thought. Um, he's not a Christian, but in this book, he describes the impact that the Gospel of John had in the ancient world when John said this. He says to the horror of the Greeks, it horrified them. To the horror of the Greeks, the new believers, the Christians maintained that the logos, in other words, the divine principle, was in no sense identical with the harmonious order of the world, but was incarnated in one outstanding individual, namely Christ. What exactly was at issue in this apparently innocent change in the meaning of a single word? Nothing less than a revolution in the definition of divinity. Friends, it was a revolution in the ancient world. It's still a revolution for us. Because the gospel is telling us that, that your purpose in life, if you want to find meaning and purpose in life, if you want to find happiness in life, that the fulfillment of all your deepest desires in this world is not a matter of you saying, okay, what are the divine principles? What are the cosmic laws? What are the spiritual precepts? And if I can just adhere to those things, if I can just align my life with these things, then I will find meaning and purpose in this world, and then I'll find happiness in this world. No, the gospel of John says that's not what it's about. 
He says, that, you know, that is a very traditional religious way of approaching life. How can I conform my life to the laws in order to be happy? If that's the way the universe works, then the universe is a very rational place, but it's also a very cold, impersonal place. The gospel says it's more than that, that the universe is more than just a rational place. It is rational. It's furiously rational, but it's more than that. At the heart of the universe, there's a loving community. Because notice how John describes this in in verse um, one. He said, the word was with God and the word was God. Now, when he says the word with, that's not the normal word for with. He actually uses a word that means to or towards. In other words, it's as if the members of the Trinity, God Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, as if they were facing each other, as if they were gazing at each other, as if they were loving one another and pouring out love toward one another. That means that that the heart of the universe, the essence and the nature of God himself is a loving community. So one of the very first theologians in the church was an African man named Augustine. Augustine said that because God is a loving community of three persons, that means that love is the essence of God. So when God created Um, he didn't do it in order to get love. If God had been unipersonal, if there was just one person in the Godhead, then, yes, God would have needed to create um, things in order to get love. And that would have meant that power comes first before love. But but God, because he's a community of three persons, of, of a loving community, that means that love comes first before power. In other words, God did not create the universe in order to get love, but to give it. Friends, the story of the gospel is the story of a world that was created for love, but because of human rebellion, because of pride, hatred, greed, cruelty, violence, is is under the shadow of darkness, and that God has come to rescue this world from the darkness. How does God come to rescue the world from darkness? By entering the darkness himself. Jesus is the way that God entered into the darkness. Because as we look at verse 5, remember it says that the light shines in the darkness, that's Jesus, and that the darkness has not overcome it. That means that as soon as Jesus entered the world, darkness started attacking. That as soon as Jesus entered the world, from the very moment of his birth, there was never a time in his life when Jesus was not being assailed by all of the forces of darkness, poverty, homelessness, uh, hatred, rejection, abandonment, torture, abuse, injustice, and ultimately murder. Because the climax of all the forces of darkness was when they nailed him to the cross. They tried to put out the light. So all, uh, many of the gospels tell us that when Jesus was on the cross, there was a, like a supernatural darkness that came over the face of the whole earth. Uh, Luke's gospel says that even the, uh, the sun's light failed. It's kind of like, if you remember Dumbledore's deluminator, that device he has that sucks all the light out of everything? It's as if all of the light in the world was being sucked out because the very source of light itself was being snuffed out when Jesus Christ died on the cross. But friends, don't you see what this is? This means that this is a love that gives of itself. This is a love that that pours itself out. This is a love that empties itself in order that you could be filled. 
So that as you come to the gospel, as you come to this Jesus, you're coming to a God who has poured himself out for you, who died in order that you might receive new life. Friends, if you're exploring faith or spirituality this morning, wherever you might be at, I want to um, encourage you to understand that, that when you're dealing with, with Jesus, what you're dealing with is someone who at the very least claimed to be God. And that if, if Jesus was not God, really God, then you're wasting your time by paying any attention to him. That when you start investigating spirituality, when you start investigating faith, that, that dealing with Jesus means dealing with someone who claimed to be the God of the universe, who came to live and die and rise again from the dead for you. So that as you explore this, this is the being that you're dealing with. That means that the gospel is not about you learning how to align yourself with the cosmic principles of the world in order to bring your life into harmony with the universe. Because if that's all it is, then it's all about what you do. The gospel tells us what Jesus did. That, that Jesus died for you, that Jesus rose from the dead for you, and that what's happening now is not you being invited to conform yourself to the principles of the universe, but to, but to come into a relationship with Jesus and journey with him as he changes your life. But for all of us, this means that, you know, if the world feels dark to you, and it does a lot of the time, if your life feels dark, if there are times when, when you feel like there's no hope, no light, no love, no point in carrying on, cast yourself upon the self-sacrificing love of Jesus. Call upon him in the darkness because Christian hope means that we realize not just that the end of the story is going somewhere beautiful, but that the very beginning of the story began in a community of love that delights to pour itself out for others, that you are secure in that that there is not just an end to the story, there's a beginning, an infinite, eternal, loving beginning to the story, and you rest in that. Call on this Jesus when you find yourself in moments of darkness that he might bring the light of his life and his love into your life and that you might in turn be transformed into a light in the midst of the darkness of others. Let's pray.